Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the story of how and why rock and roll happened with Ed Ward and Nate Wilcox. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by author James Burns to discuss his book, Let's Go to Hell, Scattered Memories of the Butthole Surfers. As always, you can access our YouTube playlists and learn more about the episodes on our website, LetItRollPodcast.com. This week, James and I talk about the unique circumstances of the 1980s that allowed a band as outre as the Butthole Surfers to reach a large international audience, the research involved in compiling a hardcore punk oral history, many staggering scatological anecdotes, and the cosmo-historic importance of Gibby Haynes, Paul Leary, and company. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome to Let It Roll. This is your host, Nate Wilcox, and this week I'm joined by a special guest, James Burns, author of Let's Go to Hell, Scattered Memories of the Butthole Surfers. It's an excellent oral history of one of my favorite bands from the 80s and 90s. James, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Nate. Great to be talking to you. Cool. So uh, this is your first rock and roll book, am I correct? It is. Um, I've written a bunch of articles for you know uh, various online publications and stuff. But uh, yeah, this was the first book and sort of where uh, I started. It was five years in the making and uh, you know painstaking efforts were put into it. So, but uh, I don't, you know I won't consider myself an author by hobby. <laughs> yeah. Well, why if you're going to pick of all you know first time author, all the bands in the world to pick, why the Butthole Surfers? Well, I mean, I was a collector starting off as, uh, you know, since I was like, first saw them when I was 16 in 1987. So I started to look for the songs or on various albums that I was hearing live and I wasn't able to find them on any album. So I started, you know, just collecting tapes and and uh, cataloging them and start, sort of, you know, building up a history just by collecting. And uh, I just found that... Uh, you know, various sor- sources and, and articles and books that I'd found on them hadn't really been accurate. They've been mostly based on the interviews with the band and kind of jokey. So I just figured that it was uh, that they were worthy of, uh, you know, real, uh, you know, book narrative about them. So, yeah, not to put words in your mouth, but you in the book, I think you make a pretty strong case for their historical importance, and especially insofar uh, the period right at the end of the Reagan era when hardcore punk had kind of fizzled out. Right. You know, can you elaborate on the case you make for why the butthole surface mattered so much in that yeah, place I and just time? Think, yeah, I think that it, what happens is, is around 1986 or so, you know, the, the punk rock started to fizzle out a little bit. The bands were breaking up. Black Flag was breaking up. Dead Kennedys were breaking up. <clears throat> and there was really no... Uh, there wasn't too much of a, of an alternative scene. There were just some bands, you know, um, you know, REM was start was making the jump, but there were very few bands that were, um, you know, the part of a, an alternative kind of scene, um, you know, which Sonic Youth and Dinosaur Junior, whatever. And I think the Bottle Surfers were at the time probably the most, you know, infamous um, independent bands, certainly on the road, uh, was where they were really making their living and. Uh, you know, I just thought that they, the Butthole Surfers were sort of the, the, the incubation period for what became, um, 
you know alternative rock and uh certainly you know everyone from Kurt Cobain to you know uh you know all the grunge bands were basically opening bands for the butthole surfers on their you know uh butthole surfers were the bands that you know that people were coming to see when Soundgarden was starting up and Screaming Trees and Nirvana um so uh you know through their perseverance and uh you know I think that it really spawned a lot of those bands to go out and uh you know become the nirvanas of the world <laughs> yeah and i want to i want to quote a section you uh wrote in your book um sort of coalescing the point it says for those few who understood the butthole surfers were the saviors who had come to liberate us from big brother those who understood were left shuddering in fear and awe and also with hope a hope springing from the realization that they they were few yet not alone that they were not the ones who were crazy after all. They were the byproducts of that which was fed to them. There were other denizens of this military-industrial complex who saw it too, and they believed as you did. To those few, the butthole surfers were the world's last and best chance at survival. And uh, I just thought that was beautiful. I thought that really summed up uh, you know, a band that I was introduced to um, sort of as a novelty, sort of a horrifying novelty band around the time, 80, 85, 86, around the time right. um, going down to Florida came out. Right. But but they were described to me as their brilliant geniuses, you know, and, and uh, that dichotomy of this band spewing the most ridiculous, obscene shit. Right. And, and yet with this power uh, and this reputation, this burgeoning reputation as geniuses, really got my attention and then when i saw him live in i believe early 88 in austin it was just a complete yeah, religious it. religious experience <laughs> yep that'll do it you know and that was that was it you know was when i had when i went to go see him the first time it was uh you know i had heard some things on vinyl and i wasn't didn't know what to expect at all um you know and again knowing them as sort of that like you said novelty or or, or jokes you know certainly tongue-in-cheek I was, you know, sort of expecting something completely different than what I saw, which was, you know, uh, huge, uh, you know, and I think that everybody who saw them back then, you know, understood, you know, had a, definitely they were, uh, their life was changed in some way, you know, from the ridiculous to the sublime, I guess. Yeah, I mean, for me, like I had seen Black Flag and the Meat Puppets and Husker Du in the yeah. Texas in, in the Texas panhandle of all places. And those were, you know, varying degrees of rough and rowdy shows. But the one common denominator was that there were no girls there or no pretty girls there. There were a few girls who were sort of, you know, head shaved, jeans, jackets, trying to be in the pit. But then I go see the butthole surfers in Austin and suddenly there aren't just a few pretty girls. There are tons of gorgeous girls. And yet I'm standing fairly close to the front of the stage next to this guy who must have been seven foot tall wearing a hot pink vest made out of some sort of teddy bear fur and a Viking helmet. <laughs> and somebody asked him, what was the scene like backstage? And he goes, oh, man, it was heavy. I had to get out of there. And at this point, I'm literally in fear for my life, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of that, especially in the when, you know, those barking dogs tapes came on. There was definitely a sense of foreboding. And I think when they started to take themselves really seriously – you know, around the time that that uh, um, locust abortion technician came out, really, those 86, 87 shows really got heavy. And, you know, you definitely see people running in fear and there was sex change or, you know, the uh, yeah. the operations on, on the, the screen and the people were throwing up and it was mayhem. Yeah, it, it really was. And I saw them the, a week or so after Slayer had played at the same place, the Austin Opera House, at a long defunct venue. Yeah. And Slayer had drawn a crowd. A lot of metal fans from San Antonio came up, and a lot of Nazis from Dallas came down. Well, you and had they had Watchtower down there and DRI. So yeah, yeah, but but crossover band. It, it was it was an ugly brawl. And so when the Butthole Surfers played, they had metal detectors and they had hired a, a whole fraternity of goons. And yet yeah. the uh, Butthole Surfers crowd was so amorphous and incoherent that they couldn't find anybody to fight with. They were getting covered with, you know, glow, glow stick liquid. And, you know, I saw some 
a goon try to take a swing at somebody and fall and slip on the floor and all the mess on the floor, you know, it was just, it was too chaotic uh, to really get any kind of brawl or mosh pit going. It was just, they, they started to, to attract, you know, it was, it was weird to see a band who were, you know, an independent band at the time, you know, selling out every place they played Um, the, the diversity of the crowd between, you know, the uh, the art guys and the you know in wire rimmed glasses and and purple mohawks and there was just such a vast array of people uh, degenerates that uh, you know made for a really fun night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was just a magical experience and and you know uh, the the band's somewhat well documented. I mean, I think they're you know obviously not as well documented as say Nirvana, but compared they to never, people- right. They never did have a book written about them, so that was the that was my my impetus. They had the section in uh, our band could be your life, but they never had. Yeah, I thought it was they were worthy of of a, of a book standalone book on their own. Yeah, and and you've definitely brought the goods here. I mean, uh, an entire rhythm section and another bass player. I think two bass players I'd never heard of that I wasn't aware were right in the on. band. And, uh, you know, I want to talk about those in a minute, but I think the one thing that you really bring home, which in fairness, Azarat, if that's how you say his name, the author of Our Band Could Be Your Life, I thought he did a good job of conveying the sacrifices uh, that the band made. I mean, he's got the anecdote about Gibby getting the, you know, out on the street collecting bottles to get enough change to eat that day and somebody kicks it away and, and, you know, Gibby's reduced to tears. But uh, you know, I think you really hammer it home. I, there's a quote early on where you talk about Gibby Haynes and Paul Leary, the, the guitarist and singer of the band. And you said, if this endeavor, endeavor failed, they would be jobless, homeless, dead. <laughs> I mean, you know, these are, these are people they who did. put everything on the line. Yeah, they, they really, they did. When you think about, you know, Gibby was you know graduating with a, a degree in accounting and, um, and you know, was a staff auditor at Pete Marwick Mitchell, which was you know the largest accounting firm at the time in the United States. And um, when he decided that that wasn't going to be who he was, I mean, after investing uh, all that money into into going to college, uh, there comes a, a point where he's like, "This is it. You know, this is what I'm going to do." And uh, and Paul had that same mindset where they were just like, this is what we're going to do. And I thought, you know, the way that they did it was not by, by making records because making records costs money. Um, they did it by getting out on the road and there are few bands that I can think of aside from maybe the Minutemen who were as, you know, on the road for three years straight. Um, certainly no slouches after that, but I think that they were, they had a formulation in their mind on how, on what they wanted and how to achieve it. And, you know, within three years time, they went from a band that was opening up for the dead Kennedys, you know, um, and that's how they were known to, you know, headlining and selling out every place they played. Yeah. And, and I think one thing that you zero in on, and I think the book does a very good job at sifting out the difference between what you call the butthole truth and the actual truth. <laughs> that took years. That's why it took so long. I'm telling you, it was it was the five years of of basically um, a missing year and a half of their existence, completely unbeknownst to what happened. Knowing that there was one bass player in the band who really propelled them from a, a band that was in Texas to uh, you know to be able to to leave Texas and get out onto the road. And after he contacted me, it was like the eureka moment. And I was had the missing piece, and I was able to pull it off. <laughs> and, and that's Bill Jolly you're referring to, that's, I assume? That's, that's correct, yes. Yeah, and, and, and that whole section, yeah, was a complete revelation to me. You know, I, I vaguely knew that there had been a pair of brothers who were their, were their rhythm section on Brown Reason to Live, the first EP they did. But I knew nothing about them. And you... You contacted him and got their story, and I did not even know Bill Jolly existed, and that added a whole, you know, uh, new aspect to the story. But I, first, before we get too in the weeds on the details of the story, a lot of our listeners, you know, we've been talking about rock and roll history in the big picture, going back to the 1920s, and and yeah, you I know, love Ed, your show; it's great. Well, really. thank you very much. Uh, and 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 you know, so much of that is due to Ed Ward and his 
kind of vision of trying to explain the social and economic and technological context that these things happen. So let's talk about the context a little bit of what was the hardcore punk movement and, and you know, why did it th thrive in the underground in the 80s and then explode into commercial dominance in the 90s and then die out? Like, just give us some of the conditions that made the emergence of the butthole surfers possible. Sure. Um you know, I think every like any music form, it has its you know its its wanes, it you know its pinnacles, and and it wanes. Uh, so I think you know after the the Sex Pistols broke up, um, which was you know 1978, um, that's when you really started to see uh, the U.S. punk scene start to you know start to materialize, um, sort of out of that. Uh, you know, Sex Pistols toward the United States. There was definitely bands, uh, you know, before that, but certainly the explosion, Black Flag, a lot of the SST bands happened around that 78, 79 um, era. You know, and I think at that point, it was, it was a nation that we were just a nation that was tired from Watergate and from, you know, politicians lying and the, the economy was in the toilet and, uh, you know, I think the same things that brought Ronald Reagan into power was the same things that, uh, you know, the punks were sort of rebelling against. Um, and, you know, why do I think that it waned later on is because an explosion, any musical explosion in the Sex Pistols lasted two years. You know, any uh, explosion like that in youth movement is usually fairly quick. Um, I think for those of us who love, you know, uh, what, U.S. the hardcore or whatever it, it you know it made uh, it was a youth movement it wasn't just uh, you know a bunch of kids screaming at a wall um, but uh, you know it's hard to say what made it right for it but I think certainly the same things are happening today and I don't see any movement so I'm not really sure what you know what the motivation was kids were really smart and book smart back then you know that helped yeah I think I think um you know, a few points I would bring up as to, you know, part of why the hardcore yeah, yeah. network <laughs> thrived. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just inviting myself open up no, for right a lecture. On. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, you had this explosion of punk around 76, 77 that happened on the major labels. You know, the Sex Pistols were on major labels. The Ramones were on Sire. And you had the Sex Pistols crash and burn uh, amidst, you know, every kind of... Th vice the record companies can't stand vomiting on radio interviews cursing on live tv odin right. murdering people you know <laughs> and, and uh the ramones were yeah, sunk goodness. sunk in the in the after wake of that as a commercial entity never to be played on the radio whereas mm -hmm. bands like blondie and the talking heads were branded you know rebranded as new wave and made mm -hmm. commercially palatable but kids like Ian Mackay in DC, all the bad brains, you know, Greg Ginn and Black Flag on the West Coast, they didn't want new wave. They wanted punk. They wanted to be punk. They wanted to take it to that next level. And and they all right, and they also got involved in every aspect of what they did. You know, much in the way that their the record companies were able to nurse bands into existence and, and provide tour support and things like that. Black Flag knew that they were never going to be on a major label, and because they were going to do what they wanted and they did that and still were able to, you know, promote themselves thanks to Pettibone, God bless them. And, you know, thanks to, uh, you know, touring and, uh, you know, producing stuff in their own studios, they sort of had to, they were their self-contained units, you know, uh, and that definitely, uh, certainly enabled the bands that thrived did that, you know, the Minutemen, Meat me Puppets, as you said, uh, you know, the, yeah. they, they had to take control of every aspect of their existence. Yeah, and, and I think, actually, Black Flag did sort of flirt with the major label when, when they were distributed briefly by MCA and Unicorn Records. But that resulted, you know, in the infamous lawsuit that banned Black Flag for over 18 months from even using their own name to perform. Right. And, and the Bad Brains were being approached by major labels from their beginning um, and either 
fucked it up or knew that that wasn't the right thing sure. for them to I mean, do. It's hard to do. Was signed in '86, you know. So yeah, they were, you know. and it, and it and for a lot of people, it kind of killed the band. You know, the, the, they they yeah. put out so many great albums on SST, and then who's going to do signs with Warner Brothers? And and suddenly the records aren't as good and sound really thin. And uh, you know, the replacements went through a similar thing. But you know, the the point I kind of want to get at is that these bands like Black Flag and the Minutemen. And even REM from Athens, Georgia, who aren't thought of as hardcore, but they hit the road in their van as well and created this network of regional scenes that were in communication with each other. And the Buttholes very early on plugged into the Austin, Texas scene, and there were a couple of bands there that were already uh, plugged into this national network, the Big Boys and the Dicks. How big a factor do you think those bands were and as an influence on the buttholes and what came there would later. never be a butthole surfers without big boys or dicks. And, you know, you could probably say that about 99% of the, of the punk rock scene, but certainly there would be no butthole surfers without big boys and the dicks. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I think the flamboyance of, uh, biscuits, the front man for the big boys and Gary yeah. Floyd, the front man of the dicks, both of whom were, large individuals uh who both yeah. like to dress in drag and and really freak out the squares <laughs> that's right and in texas no less <laughs> yes and so you know moving down to austin in 87 88 i heard and trying to get into the punk scene i heard incessantly from you know old timers people who are five or six years older than me right. who had seen those shows with the butthole surfers and the dicks and the big boys all together and, and you know it just sounded uh, so incredible the live at Raul's, uh, you know, the yeah, scene. But anarchy. yeah, and so I, I think historically, the hardcore punk scene in the '80s was sort of a inadvertent revival of the sort of regional scenes that you'd saw in the '60s, '50s, and '60s when you had different independent labels and different radio stations with their own playlists. That's the right. kids, yep. the kids were rebuilding this so that the Austin punk scene had a certain flavor visa you know and the orange county scene in la had a different flavor and then you know you had the buttholes or the meat puppets in arizona you know who's doing the replacements in minneapolis you had the and bad brains the band's tours you know rallying through you know they'd go up to vancouver where doa would put them up and they'd go down to minneapolis where who's could do would put you know, would hook them up in San Fran with Jello or MDC or, or Gary, you know, Gary Floyd would hook them up. So you could always see their tours routed through each individual scene, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and the records, you know, that there was a, a ton of independent record companies opening up, you know, Jello Buff of the Dead Kennedys had the alternative tentacles label. Ian McKay of, of Minor Threat had the Discord label. Greg Ginn of Black Flag obviously had the SST label. And so the buttholes travel out to L.A. in this just unbelievable idiocy, uh, you know, uh, and I want you to tell some of the anecdotes from that trip, but they immediately managed to open up for the Minutemen in L.A. and, according to Butthole Truth or Butthole Legend, drive a van uh, to San Francisco and just make it yeah, to yeah, yeah. a legendary show at a club called The Tool and Die where their friends, uh, is it MDC or the Big Boys, just happen to be playing and opening up for the Dead Kennedys. Yeah, there's... there's... <laughs> I include both stories. The one story from uh, Tom Flynn from Fang calling complete bullshit on Paul's story <laughs> and Paul's story, which, which has been told so many times, accurate, you know, down to the T, never, the story has never changed. So who's right and who's wrong, I will not, you know, say. <laughs> but yeah, their their van stalled and they did make it to play the show, uh, regardless of who was there, Jello was there. And uh and they played three or four songs and Jello saw them and said, uh, you know, you guys want to open for us on 4th of July at the Whiskey in, in L.A., which is a huge show for them at the time. Um, so they do that and things are going really well. And then, you know, they run out of money and have to lumber back to, to uh, <laughs> Texas, which is but they do. Uh, yeah. Th th upon that meeting with with Jello, he says, uh, you know, if you guys record anything, uh, I'll release it. And uh, they recorded during that same tour with Spot, uh, the SS, famed SST label producer, you know, pretty much house uh, producer for SST. 
but uh, th- those tapes don't go anywhere, and uh, those are sort of missing in action. But they do record, uh, and eventually the band leaves after they re- return back to Texas. That's when the Matthews brothers uh, quit the band. And the band sort of lumbered without, uh, you know, any tapes. They couldn't pay for the tapes from Spot, so they didn't have those. And uh, they sort of lumber around Texas, and that's when they meet up with with Bill Jolly and. Uh, and actually form the band again. But uh, yeah, the trip to California was, who wouldn't want to go to California? LA's punk scene was, was, you know, they would have venues like the Olympic would sell out, you know, 3,000, 3,500 seats, whatever, or standing room only, uh, you know, so they have, you know, visions of sugar plums for a small band from Texas. And, and, and as hard as it was, and as much as they went crawling back to Texas with their tail between their legs because, you know, they just could not support themselves in California and couldn't find a place to live and, you know, lose their rhythm second section acrimoniously. And that's another great story where your oral history format lets you give uh, Scott Matthews side of the story that he was the original drummer. And then Paul Leary's side of the story, you know, and it's, it's, it's pretty classic. What happened there according to Matthews? Sure. So they, they come back to Texas and they're, they're, pretty much penniless and despite you know some some things that happened in california like meat and jello uh some positives they they return back and have pretty much no money and sort of destitute they dead kennedys are on tour so they decide you know dead kennedys open up uh decide to ask them to open up so they're like great so they play a huge show and it's in Dallas, uh, where, where Gibby's parents are. So they decide, Paul and Gibby, that uh, they're staying at Gibby's parents' house and leave the show. Well, uh, Quinn and uh, Scott uh, didn't get paid. So uh, the story has it that they showed up at Gibby's parents' house at 3 o'clock in the morning demanding payment. Um, and a fist fight ensues. And that night, <laughs> Bottle Surfers were whittled down to just Gibby and Paul with no rhythm section and no band. Um, and uh, they spend the next six months or so recording their EP by themselves. Yeah, without even a bass player. And, and I mean, you know, Matthews tells yeah. the story, we weren't getting paid, so I go to Mr. Peppermint's front yard in the middle of the night. And Mr. Peppermint, of course, this is a big part of the Butthole Server's legend, is Gibby's father, who was a legendary kid show TV host in Dallas. Yes, the Captain and, uh, Kangaroo of Dallas. Yeah, and that's the sort of thing that was, you know, just mind blowing on the rumor mill. And people, you know, you didn't, you'd hear that the singer of the Butthole Surfers was the kid of Mr. Peppermint, and that his dad had sent him to clown school to learn how to do this stuff. And and you didn't know, you know, what to make of it. But now we know he really was the kid of Mr. Peppermint. The, the clown yeah. college part appears to have been made up. But, <laughs> but, uh, but like Paul Leary's version of that story is, you know, we're drunk after the show at home, at Gibby's house and then Scott shows up beating on the front door screaming at the top of his lungs about how Gibby was ripping him off I, I went outside to talk to him this is Paul Leary and he punched me in the eye he got whatever money he demanded and left it was pretty stupid you know so so you know it's a great I just I think that's just a great part of the oral history format and and obviously Legs McNeil's um, Please Kill Me the chronicle of the New York punk scene is to my knowledge the first oral history of of punk rock and it's a, a great template uh for writers um but yeah. let's talk about bill jolly this guy had a crazy background he was a jazz fusion veteran from the 70s yeah he was uh he was in a jazz fusion band he was in new york city as a uh music student and uh uh so, you know plays bass he's a amazing bass player and uh just before the band was about to go out on tour, uh, the namesake of the band gets killed in a train crash. His car, he was in a car and his uh, train kills him. So that band ends, he goes back to, to Texas, sort of not knowing what to do. And uh, eventually through some friends, he hears about, uh, you know, Gibby and Paul needing a, a rhythm section, needing a bassist. And just decides to go down and check out what it's all about because, you know, punk rock is kind of sort of gaining steam. And, you know, like you said, the, the big boys and the dicks were so huge that they were starting to attract, you know, people outside of the normal punk scene just from friends telling them, oh, you got to go see these guys. And so Bill decides to go down and, and try out. And uh, he remains a steady member of the band. For some reason, nobody knows him. 
if it wasn't for Bill joining the band, uh, I don't think the Bottle Surfers would have, you know, lasted long enough to to leave Texas and go out on the road. But he he leaves the band just before their first tour, and uh, and I think that's why he becomes that the enigma but it's it's hard to trace that period if you don't know bill between that 1983 when they first started recording 82 when they first started recording their first ep and the time when they leave texas and and that was pretty much him who propelled them out <laughs> yeah and that, and it was just like i said i thought great reporting to track him down and and the story about when he recruited you know his roommate kevin kevin leman or lehman uh to be the drummer and the guy got hit in the face with a full beer bottle in his first gig, and that was that. It happens, yeah. <laughs> and rock. then, yeah, There's but that. Bad apples. <laughs> yeah, and 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 uh, and that's that's one thing. Yeah, the the there's always a few bad apples, but they were there at every show. Is a, is right. a quote from your book that for anybody who lived through that era, you know, this was an era when kids are trying to put on their own shows and police their own shows with no police support no you know corporate security like you would have at a, at a major club or a, right. or a arena venue and yeah we would have these bad apples uh just a few bad apples who could you know ruin a show and they would be at every show mm-hmm. and uh, and but but around this time they meet somebody uh, king coffee who's coming out of fort worth a band called the u beaumont experience and he tells them he's quite willing to get hit uh in the head of the football <laughs> That's that's, yeah, that's a classic line. I'm, I was quite willing to be hit in the head with a bottle. Um, and King stood, you know, he didn't uh, have a, a drum stool, so uh, he was definitely a, a pretty big target. Uh, but yeah, that was. Um, they sort of floundered around and played with uh, with a couple of different drummers, just trying people out. And eventually, King's band was sort of dissolving, and they uh, they said uh, we want to try King out. And Bill's like, this guy doesn't even have a. a kick drum not gonna play in a band with this guy and eventually they're like uh well you know if you don't want to play with them you're out and uh king comes down uh and sort of bill is sort of weary about him but uh god bless him he joins and uh i mean he is really um an original member they always say gibby and paul are the only two original members but you know king definitely uh was able to to keep those two together from killing each other for all yeah. those years. <laughs> and he's and he's been with them to this day, you know, and, yeah. and and anchor the scene. But right around the same time, they acquire a second drummer, a woman named Teresa Taylor, who's washing dishes with them in one of their periodic returns right. to Austin. And uh, they find out she's got some roommates who are in a band, and there's some practice space in her house. Ask if they can use her house to practice in. She ends up jamming with Gibby. You know, she sits behind a drum kit and plays with Gibby while he's playing guitar for five minutes. And next thing, you know, she's been invited to join the band. Yeah, yeah. So um, the two drummer experience, which is, uh, you know, Grateful Dead, Allman Brothers. Except <laughs> very different because I remember hearing James about Brown. one of the one of the rumors. Yes, the legendary James Brown. One of the rumors I heard about the buttholes before I saw them was. Oh my God! They've got this pair of identical twin albino brother and sisters who play stand-up drums. Albinos, right? That's great. <laughs> yeah, because they were both blonde or dyed their hair blonde, and they did. Oh, the, the rumors that used to circulate. Yeah, and this is pre-internet, so you know legends <laughs> could really right. build. That's and right. they did tell people they were womblings, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, Gibby and Paul definitely like to spin tales and let people believe them. King and Teresa are a little bit you know, more circumspect in there, uh, fabulating. But, um, you know, Teresa's another one, you know, she's in and out of the band over the next few years, but to me is definitely a core member of the band. Yeah. Yeah. Led them to greatness. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and you talk a lot about the context of the Reagan era and, and that it's important for everybody to remember that this was happening in the Reagan era, which was this huge political swing to the right, uh, morning hey, in America, you know, very, it's not such a stretch anymore, you know, <laughs> <I> know. <laughs> it's a uh, uh, very, uh, a lot of echoes of, of the Trump era, you know, when yeah, you look back at dead the, and buried. the Reagan era, uh, it, it seems to be worse this time, but the yeah. one time that buttholes actually did make a political statement was when they contributed a song called 100 million dead to 
the Peace Comp, which was this double album compilation put together by Dave Decker of the MDC, which was a band that started in Austin and then moved to San Francisco, and tremendously politically active band, you know, very legendary hardcore band. I mean, did things like John Wayne was a Nazi, uh, you know, just really in face, no subtlety at all. But mm-hmm. this this Peace Comp. You know, this was something I got at a Hastings in Borger, Texas. It was somehow widely distributed around the country and the world. Included bands from Japan, from Eastern Europe, all over America. And the, that was, I think, absolutely my first exposure to the Butthole Surfers, the song 100 Million Dead. I mean, how committed were they? You made it that far into the record. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we, 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 we were in Borger, Texas. We had nothing else to do. We drained. We, we listened to every track on that record and tracked right down – all the bands, you know, we could, um, but like, how committed do you think they were to the politics of of the Reagan era and the, and the left wing agitation of their colleagues? Like the Dicks were waving a hammer and sickle flags around, and MDC were right. extremely politically active. The Big Boys were were very politically active, you know, uh, at openly homosexual and advocating. Uh, you know, race mixing and and, and all kinds right. of things like that. And and the buttholes always had more of a kind of a cynical. They were so impenetrable; it was hard to pin them down. But this was the one time they tipped their hand. I mean, do you think they believed it or? No, they definitely believed it. Um, that was the whole thing. Is that uh, I really, to me, that song is the most poignant of the uh, anti-nuke songs on that record. It doesn't really have uh, you know much lyrics other than 100 million people are dead, but it it really conveys uh, a lot of their views. It's the only overtly political song that they did, but they were so. They're, by by being able to travel around the country and sell out and create a huge following um, for an independent band and do whatever they wanted from films to uh, to naked lady dancers to you know just a, a circus would pull into town and I think by doing that and being self sufficient they were certainly uh, as much of a political statement than you know say dead Kennedys. Yeah, or making it sort of a more direct. And at this point, another record label comes into the picture. Uh, Corey Rusk from Detroit and his label Touch and Go, which was originally, I think, founded by uh, uh, Tesco via the Meat Men and uh, the lead singer for the Necros, Barry Hensler. Yeah, they worked it from magazine and sort of worked it into a record label, yeah. Yeah, and Corey Rusk was briefly the bass player of the Necros and then you know ends up taking over the label. And he wants the butthole surfers and they're kind of like still trying to be on alternative tentacles this was more stuff i didn't know i i thought that they had just leapt over to touch and go and were on touch and go but the way you you know you're reporting they were they were still trying to put out a record on alternative tentacles this whole time yep yep all through uh really up until about cream corn was when they decided we're (laughs) you know at is never going to take us um but they do want to provide a record for them. They feel sort of indebted uh, to them for for helping them out for the first two EPs. Um, but yeah, it just never materializes. And Corey and, and Terry Tolkien, uh, who's you know really helped Corey with you know build the business side of of Touch and Go, um, and uh, they sort of put put together this this compilation of bands that sort of weren't in the punk uh, realm. Uh, sort of, you know, started to form in the mid '80s when when punk started to morph into some noise rock and and really heavy metal, uh, you know, crossover type stuff. Uh, Terry grabs, you know, Bottle Surfers and Scratch Acid, also from Texas, Killdozer from Madison, Wisconsin, and puts this, you know, really puts a stamp on what Touch and Go would become, sort of a, you know, the the, the label that it became. In that uh, God's favorite dog compilation, and Big Black of Chicago as well. You got it right on, right on, yeah. And, and that, and that, and and, and you get so. Too. Rick Rubin uh, and Hose. Yeah, Rick Rubin's mm-hmm. band before he uh, became a producer. Um, yeah, so that 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 comp is absolutely you know pivotal, and you really you really see ham- a change in the scene at that point. You know, between what was what what it really became. Uh, that that compilation that Terry put together was. Uh, really instrumental in, in forging what alternative rock would become, I think. Yeah, I think I think because it's at a time when a lot of the first wave of hardcore bands are fading, and then another set of hardcore bands 
like Naked Ray Gun and Husker Du and the replacements are becoming more melodic and more sort of pop. They're not having right. any commercial Sonic success. Youth, Sonic Youth starting to to really grab a hold and uh, you know releasing some great SST records as well. Yeah, and and I would actually put Sonic Youth in the second category with Big Big Black and the Buttholes of bands that kept it scary and dangerous, and yet were still innovative. They weren't just repeating right. hardcore, and they weren't aping metal. It was this whole new scene and sound that was even scarier than hardcore in a lot right. of ways had been. Yeah. And and you know I think you really bring home how much uh, Touch and Go was financed by the success of the Butthole Surfers. Right, which that and that sort of led up to you know what had happened later on in their relationship and the, and the ugly, ugly lawsuit that sort of really diminished the Butthole Surfers' reputation. Um, I said that's another really impetus because by the time <clears throat> that I started, people started asking who's your favorite band, and I say Butthole Surfers, and they're like, ugh, you know, because yeah. that's the way yeah. their name was just dragged through the mud with the lawsuit. Um, and, uh, and that's a lawsuit that, in the 90s when they end up suing Corey Rusk uh, for right. back royalties and control of the catalog, and they win. And But in the process, they destroy not only Touch & Go, but also King's record label, Trance Records, which had been distributed by Touch & Go. Right. King signed off on that, but nonetheless, it, you know, it was a tragic it's loss a, for them. Uh, ugly. Yeah, very ugly. And it, it it's of a piece with the many lawsuits that Greg Ginn of SST Records, uh, you know, founder of Black Flag, has found himself in. The lawsuit where Jello Biafra lost the lawsuit against that the other Dead Kennedys brought against Jello and Alternative Tentacles. And so it's sort of a very much of a piece with, you know, a sort of kill your idols or it's it's very impossible as a punk fan of that era to have any heroes in a naive sense. Like all of these people were revealed to have had feet of clay and or business interests. And, right. you know, the, yeah, I never think that the dead Kennedys would be suing Jello for back royalties. You know, that was, and, and when it, dead Kennedy, <laughs> right. And dead Kennedy's records to be on a different label other than alternative tentacles. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it seems like Ian Mackay of discord is the only one, you know, to have emerged from that era with his reputation completely intact. But, you know, I think you do a good job in the book of, of bringing out the, the butthole side of that, of that argument. Um, and, 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 and I think you do a good job all the way through of making the case. You repeatedly talk about instances where fans and, and fanzine writers, you know, are criticizing them because, Hey, you know, cool bands only charge $5 to get in. How dare you charge six fifty for admission, you know, and Paul Leary's... For, yeah, for yeah. Early, early on, too. Yeah, and Paul Leary's argument is, man, I, I don't even have a home. I live in a van, <laughs> you know? Right. And, and, and I'm hearing from you rich college fucks that you don't want to pay six bucks to see me. Screw you, was basically the butthole's attitude. And, and right. you know, they got their money uh, uh, over and over again, you know? And you talk about... You paint a pretty vivid picture of, you know, six foot five inch Gibby Haynes frequently altered on hallucinogens and alcohol, confronting club owners and, and kid promoters who don't come up with the money. Right. That was a notorious thing. You know, the bands, these bands were traveling uh, from town to town and basically, you know, uh, hand to mouth and, and then club owners not paying them and, uh, you know, just getting them them getting tossed out on their asses by bouncers and saying, you know, see you later. Your you know, your fans did more damage to my club than than I could pay you, so you're done. And uh, you know, and them just going back out onto the road and and sucking it up. But uh, the bottle surfers realized that if they weren't, you know, if they didn't get paid, <laughs> they wouldn't make it to the next town and they wouldn't be able to eat. And uh, so. Uh, Rather than have a tour manager, Gibby is six foot five and <laughs> <that> helps. <laughs> yeah, and his and policy danger. was, yeah, if if you don't pay me, I'm going to destroy enough equipment that it's going to cost you more not to pay me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, that's right. And he 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 was six foot five, but it wasn't just that. He was, you know, captain of the basketball team in in college, and you know, he was no slouch. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I've seen Gibby. Uh, drill a fan in the crowd with a full six of a full beer can uh at 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 least 60 yards and and <laughs> zip the exact right one who was throwing shit at the, the stage you know yeah and uh you know uh i mean 
Gibby, you know, and seeing him around Austin, particularly and uh, in, in the pre rehab era, was just a scary dude. You know, I mean, he was he was yeah. a, a big intimidating, yeah, unpredictable guy. But I want to talk also about college radio and the role that uh, you know their hit single going down to Florida had. I mean, it wasn't a hit in the sense of it wasn't on top forty. But it was a hit in the sense it was played on college radio stations all around the country. For people who don't have any idea, what was college radio and why was it such a big deal in the 80s? Yeah, it was just really the last, the only bastion of independence, uh, you know, on on the radio. Uh, and uh, they would play, you know, there would be various radio shows. So you you could hear, you know, um, surf music on one show and, you know, uh, light rock on the next. And usually, you know, every decent radio station had, a had uh, you know, a, an alternative show. And uh, that was where anybody heard their music back then, pretty much, you, you know, um, unless your friend turned you on to it, you'd have to listen to college radio to hear anything that wasn't, you know, Bon Jovi. Yeah, and and going to, down to Florida, which came out at eighty five, eighty six on the Cream Corn EP, that was their breakout hit and on college radio and got them you know exposed all over the country. And then you talk about Locust Abortion Technician, the nineteen eighty seven album. That I think the critical consensus is that's the peak Butthole Surfers album. That's just an absolute. You know, you compare it to Trout Mask Replica. Uh, I, I think it's a little hyperbolic, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think the big difference though is that Locust Abortion Technician rocks in a way that Trout Mask Replica does not. Like you, oh, we could argue about that. Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, for another I'm, show. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm a huge <laughs> Trout Mask Replica fan, but I've I've put Trout Mask on at a party before and see how it oh, how it, it kills the vibe. Whereas <laughs> Locust Abortion Technician. I've actually, you know, back in the '80s, slipped into parties uh, with open-minded metalheads, and you know, they immediately got the Black Sabbath quotation of the, you know, sweet, sweet leaf riff, and and were willing to be taken on that trip. And it is a very trippy record. Yeah. And yeah. The- they spent a lot of time overdubbing. You know, Paul especially just was trying out just every tape splicing technique that he could think of and and just incorporating overdubs 64 kick drums and uh really is experimenting without a, a care because they knew they would produce it and that Corey would release it and they, so they gave them the freedom to just do whatever they wanted to and Corey would just threw it out onto the market yeah and and despite making zero commercial concessions it was a very well received album. I mean, and one of those it albums, though, certainly, yeah. certainly over over the years, as as people started to recognize it, and uh, it, it definitely has become legendary for sure. Yeah, much yeah. in the way the Meat Puppets too. When the Meat Puppets too was released initially, really, how huge was that? It wasn't until you know they were on the acoustic Nirvana thing that uh, you know. And that's sort of the same way with the locust abortion technician. Over the years, the people writing about, you know, the the sex shows and things like that, everyone was like, well, who sh- what should I check out? And people said locust abortion technician, you know, and yeah. that's sort of where and, we are. And you and you mentioning the sex shows, I think we have to talk about um, the you t- one common theme throughout your book is is this phenomenon of the buttholes playing shows that seemed disastrous at the time, going all the way back to when they played as a two-piece in Houston and Gibby got so shit-faced he couldn't play any of the songs, through their infamous... Yeah, naked. (laughs) Uh, Through their infamous stand at Danceteria in New York City, I think that was in 85? um, Early 86, February 86. Early 86, uh, where they essentially put on a riot uh, at one of the top dance clubs in New York City and yet emerged from that... Bigger than ever, and and yeah, it happened and again in Rotterdam. It, yeah, yeah. There was when they they when they were at their most, you know, uh, disastrous. That people it started to drag people out to the shows because that's how the reputation grew, and uh, that's again that's where they made their money was out on the road. So really, that show is what started to get reported in papers all around the country and and grow in in its uh, in. <laughs> in the legends that got you know toppled on top of one another, um, that's their time on the road. Where after that, they were selling out everywhere. Yeah, so and it, the, it just built <laughs> built uh, up that circus. 
the circus atmosphere, but they reach a certain point in the late 80s, and you talk about it where they had gotten about as big as they could get uh, on an independent label, and everybody and their dog is suddenly getting signed to major labels. How do, how do the buttholes re- react to that? Yeah, they, they were being courted, you know, pretty much since after their 1988 record, Hairway to Steven, you know, around about that time when, uh, when uh, Hughes Could Do was signed and replacements were signed and REM was signed into these bands were, you know, uh, starting to make the, the shift, the, the bottle surfers. The problem was the band name and that nobody could really get the, you know, radio stations wouldn't say their name, newspapers wouldn't print their names. So it was sort of in a place where they could have gotten signed probably years earlier, but, um, you know, they were who they were. Um, and then, I'm sorry, yeah, and then at that, at that point, you know, uh, Lollapalooza happens, and, uh, you know, that's when really ma- independent bands are kind of dragged into uh, into the mainstream. And, and that was uh, Perry Farrell of Jane's Addiction's Music Fest that right. ran on all through the 90s into the aughts. Uh, and the Butthole Surfers were uh, towards the bottom of the bill, but they were on the first Lollapalooza tour. That's right. And yeah, you, you had Lollapalooza that summer and Nirvana releasing Nevermind you know, a month later after the tour ends. And, you know, at that point, it becomes really nearly impossible for bands to, to not uh, get signed. And certainly by that point, early 90s, things are starting to loosen up a little bit. We get Clinton in the White House. Things are a little bit more loosey-goosey. People are actually willing to, to say their name or, or print it once uh, in an article. Uh, and, you know, at that point, it's sort of uh, impossible for, for bands that have been around for decades and built up such a following to, to avoid, uh, you know, jumping on onto the major scene yeah and 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 they eventually sign with capital records but first they they have this abortive attempt to go with rough trade which had been almost a major label it was coming out of england and had pretty big distribution but they got there just in time for rough trade to implode right and you know i think the um again their friend terry tolkien who set up so much for them at touch and go got the had moved on to rough trade and got him this uh got him them signed on to rough trade when he, you know it was sort of known a rough trade was going over sort of the you know the uh the dirty secret that rough trade was in really bad shape they had been for a long time and uh they the deal is that the bottle surface is going to release with both rough trade several albums of themselves and, and solo projects and uh, and save the label and by the time they had to try to distribute all the these butthole surfers records um they just went under they couldn't afford to produce it and that was it so by the time they get there on the Lollapalooza tour they're actually not on any label yeah and po was also a pretty bad record i mean it just sounded thin and and uninspired so it was a kind of a double whammy but then they signed with Kittle, and the fun really starts. They 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 do uh, an album with John Paul Jones of Led Zeppelin producing, and it does okay. And then they do a next album that has actually has a top forty hit single. How the hell did that happen? You know, um, I will not say anything bad about Pepper. <laughs> <I think it's laughs> I'm not a asking great you pop to. Song, you know, and again, you can look back to their earliest records and find find pop tunes. So. Um, you yeah, know, the I second song think, on their first EP is a is right. a pop tune. You know? That's right. And uh, so when when Pepper comes out, I think they're more surprised. You know, they're as much surprised as anybody else. They're at the time in pretty bad financial straits because they're in the middle of a lawsuit with Touch and Go. So all of their old royalties are pretty much uh, you know held up, and um, you know and uh, Rough Trade is going under. So they don't have uh, you know. They're really in financial straits, and and uh, Electric Larry Land comes out. I think they were just as surprised as anybody. Certainly, uh, they didn't think that they could even pronounce their name on the radio. And it turns out the commercial state radio stations actually picked up the song and took off. I, I definitely think that they were just as surprised as anybody else that the song took off. Yeah, and you also do a job. I don't want to dwell on the sort of decline and fall period of the band, but. Um... 
the aftermath of having a top 40 hit basically changed the stakes for their future recording and and they weren't able to do what they wanted to do after that the, the record yeah. label was hunting for hits right and at the, for a band like the bottle surfers who's never really been the same thing from from record to record to be on a major that's that's the kiss of death because especially if a song or you know if if you get a hit you're expected to reproduce that hit over and over again for record after record. So when they come back and try to produce their next album, which is really a, an electronica album, uh, it just falls for suits don't want to release it. Nobody wants to touch it. Um, they can't go back you know, with their tail between their legs to the indie scene because they're really pariahs at that point for you know, pursuing uh, Corey Rusk. Uh, so they're really they're left with an album that the main the their record label won't release, and they they're really kind of left uh, no, with nobody. Um, and it's, it's, that's that's the kind of the sad state of affairs when you say the downfall. That was uh, yeah ninety seven ninety eight when uh, you know Capitol wouldn't even release a, a follow up single to the, a top forty song such as Pepper. You know, so they didn't even get a follow up single. And then uh, shortly thereafter, lawsuit, and they sort of wallowed. Yeah, and Gibby Gibby had you know drug problems, and and Paul Leary uh, went on to be you know produce Sublime and 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 yeah. have enormous success uh, as a mainstream producer. But I want to I want to end with a quote uh, from you towards the end yeah, of the end book. On the high note. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, and uh, you know you're you're sort of summing summing it up, and it says forgotten by the casual fans they had courted for the success they achieved during their time on Capitol, rather than being remembered for their groundbreaking and genre-bending work of the previous two decades. Um, the decade they spent building their dreams with endless tours and consciousness-altering albums would be remembered only by the few whose memory wasn't completely destroyed by the ravages of lysergics. Jane's Addiction is often credited as the band that kept the spirit of punk alive while incorporating the hedonism and spirit of free love aesthetics of the 60s. Nirvana, Nirvana is credited for changing the face of rock music and Beck as the voice of a new generation. But the butthole surfers were relegated to a mere footnote of all the bands they influenced. And if they were indeed a footnote in the history books of rock music, it would at least be some recognition. And an acknowledgement that for a time when underground music was dying, the butthole surfers were one of the brave few to keep it on life support long enough for Nirvana to bring it back from its coma. And that, to me, uh, you know, as somebody who's a Gen Xer, and, and I think we're kind of watching our his, history, our history never really made the papers in the first place. A little, a little while with Nirvana, and at yeah. some point I'll do an episode on grunge and all my mixed feelings about that. But, uh, but the butthole surfers, for those of us who were there, communicated something really important and alive and the fact that this band was making this art that was so wild and so out there and so obviously meaningful and powerful and scary and disturbing and offensive you know and bad but it was obvious dangerous. that something was yeah dangerous that something was going on here and the fact that they had such success even if it was underground really meant the world to those of us and i, I just want to thank you james for chronicling the story and for coming on the show Oh, Nathan, thanks so much. We really had a great time. I appreciate it. Awesome. And, and thanks, James. And we'll be back with Let It Roll. Thanks for listening. Next week, I'll be back with Dr. Cam Cobb to finish the tragic story of Moby Grape. Be sure and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com to access the YouTube playlists and hear the music we're talking about. Let's Go to Hell, Scattered Memories of the Butthole Surfers by James Burns is published by Cheap Drugs and available at Amazon.com and wherever fine books are sold. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 